I don't like to repeat topics too much because, you know, I feel like I've said everything I need to say about them to make it worth your while. But, hey, listen, James Gunn was in the news again talking about DC Films or what they're calling now DC Studios. I was getting used to calling it DC Films, but you know what? DC Studios rolls off the tongue, sounds good, and it is in keeping with what DC management has been trying to do forever, which is drop the comics moniker from DC. Of course, because the C in DC already stands for comics, but I feel like, I don't know, there's something special about DC Comics having that comics redundancy, almost like a reinforcement of the comics, because of course, DC stands for Detective Comics, so it was always Detective Comics Comics. But DC no longer, I think, really stood for Detective Comics because it's not about detectives, although Incidentally, in the last, let's say, 20 years or so, DC has depended on the strength sales of Batman, who of course sprung from Detective Comics, and of course DC Comics has featured Batman as its main protagonist for the majority of the series' existence since, uh, I think, issue 27. But yeah, I remember there being uh, an internal memo that was spread around, apparently, that said we need to start using the DC, drop the comics, just call it DC. Anytime we're doing anything, it's DC. When it's a TV show, it's the DC show. When it's the movie, it's the DC movie. When it's the comic book, it's from DC. Not the DC comic book, but rather Wonder Woman from DC, issue 497 of Batman from DC, etc. And I think as a kid, I probably would have been a lot more on board for it than I am now. But the reason why I'm not, like, champing at the bit for everything to just be called DC is because... Everything that I look at now is through the lens of a content creator on YouTube that depends on metadata and tags. And when you tag DC for anything, there's a lot of other DCs out there. It's tough to distinguish the two-letter placeholder for an entire universe or multiverse and cast of characters when, just to use an example, the nation's capital is DC. But what do I know? Anyway, so James Gunn addresses these two hashtags that were circulating. Hashtag save Legends of Tomorrow and hashtag release the air cut. And he addresses them directly by being like, so I woke up this morning and I read all these things and I saw all these tags. And I want you to know that we acknowledge that they exist and we are open to quote everything as we embark on this journey. I don't see that as an endorsement, nor do I see that as a like, we're bringing all this stuff back. I think it's more like, let's encourage the audience that exists right now and where those audiences came from, right? Because there is a significant portion of DC fans that came from the CW shows, which were all unceremoniously canceled and all for the better. We'll get into that maybe in a minute. But Legends of Tomorrow was a popular show among its audience and has a very strong fan base that also happens to represent positivity. And then there's hashtag release the air cut, which represents the other arm of DC Multimedia, which is movies, but more specifically movies that are made by a very distinct filmmaker who had an original cut that got it taken away from them. Of course, we have a larger example of that, don't we? In the form of the Snyder Cut, which happened and exists and is done. But I think that Gunn smartly acknowledges it and doesn't acknowledge the Snyderverse or Snyder Cut because I think he's trying to focus on the way in which people are approaching those tags and how positive the audiences are and acknowledging that there are desires from the audience that the studio may actually be able to deliver. That said, I don't think that Gunn's bringing back the Legends of Tomorrow or bringing in an A or cut. I think that 
maybe if there is an air cut somewhere, we might see that someday. And I think that dropping it on HBO Max is probably the best solution. But as you can see, as he continues to say, the initial focus of the studio is on the story going forward, hammering out the new DCU and telling, quote, the biggest story ever told across multiple films, television shows and animated projects, which got me interested because I'm like, wait a minute. You capitalized the biggest story ever told, and I think it's not so much that they have a plan or a phase three Thanos saga-esque idea. I think it's more that they're like, we're telling one cohesive, contiguous universe story across these multiple platforms, basically concentrating on one universe and one continuity. The fun part is the inclusion of movie, TV, and animated projects, something that DC could have done at any point ever since Superman they could have made a Trinity movie. They could have made a Justice League movie. They could have had Superman appear in the Batman Burton movies. And I'm not saying any of those things would have been improved or even great. I am saying, however, that part of the benefit, if there are any, of being owned by a major studio is that you don't have to worry about making weird backroom deals with Sony Pictures or concentrating on your lowest-selling superheroes to try and build out a greater universe because your bigger ones have been licensed to other rival studios. So because Warner Brothers is still Warner Brothers and they own all of the characters without any caveats or weird conditions, they can do a full, well-rounded DC universe in multimedia. In, as James Gunn says, movies, TV, and animation. And while the previous administrations at both DC and Warner's have been pretty happy just kind of doing whatever, having the animation arm either do adaptations or their own universe or their own multiverse or their own just random individual projects or their TV shows having virtually nothing or everything to do with each other or the movies being wholly separate projects or not. It seems like there is a clear line of communication and direction at last, which is pretty exciting. I'm not even really excited about speculating about what they're going to do so much as I am excited about being at the bedrock of what they seem to be promising to be a cinematic universe. I'm getting my sources, by the way, from uh, an IGN article written about two days ago, basically just summarizing the whole thing and adding their own spin and uh, commentary on the subject. But I'm really just kind of focusing on James Gunn's tweets that came out about two days ago. And I think this is completely doable in a really effective way, not only because we have like a template from Marvel, but also because... We know the power of TV, movies, and animation to get people on board and interested in your properties. Now, we, of course, know, I think by this point, what is going to get people to go to a movie versus what people are willing to watch on TV. But that doesn't mean they have to be set in separate universes. For instance, I think we all know Zaslav is focused on getting tentpole movies out there. These are the big-budget big magnet movies like Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. However, we also know that there is a large portion of the audience that digs magic, but might not necessarily go see a Zatanna movie, or a Constantine movie, or a Justice League Dark movie. Or maybe they might not watch a Zatanna, Constantine, Swamp Thing movie, but they would see Zatanna, Constantine, Swamp Thing shows, or a show featuring all three. Or maybe they'd watch a Dead Man show. So you make those into TV properties, or more likely HBO Max exclusive properties. And of course, you can measure 
the size and success of those audiences because you're distributing those properties through your own internal streaming service. And so you can see if, let's say, a Justice League Dark movie was warranted because you know exactly how many people watched all of those shows and how popular those shows got as you gave them life because you're not spending movie budgets on their shows. Or hell, maybe you can't make a Justice League Dark movie, but you can do a Justice League Dark series, and just because those characters debuted on their Justice League Dark or Magic-based shows doesn't mean that Dead Man couldn't show up in a Batman movie, doesn't mean that Constantine can't razzle Superman in a Justice League movie. I don't know what the hell they would do with animation, but... I mean, if I were looking to save money but also still build out my universe, I might consider doing like a Green Lantern Corps movie that takes place in the depths of space that introduces you to a few Earthbound Green Lantern heroes that are part of a larger core, introduce the other spectrums, and introduce a larger interstellar DC universe that could also introduce larger concepts and characters that maybe might be too expensive to try out in a movie or even in a live-action show but might be a lot more accepted and successful in animation but also could still build their audiences that way and acclimate the audiences to those concepts that could then be later introduced in a movie or TV show, or both. Better yet, animation could also bridge the gap between live-action properties and prequels by just getting the cast from those other projects to voice characters in stories that may not be practical to film, but might still be no less entertaining to the audience. It's a smart move, and while it may mirror Marvel's approach right now in Phase 4, because of course we have the movies, we have the Disney Plus live-action shows, and we have What If, and What If introduced Captain Carter, who appeared in Multiverse of Madness, so like, we're seeing that synergy right now in Disney-Marvel's approach. But Warner Brothers and DC Studios can still pull that off because they have the infrastructure in place to make that happen. Now, in the same vein as DC Studios and future DC projects, on the 4th of November, we saw that David Zaslav, Steven Spielberg, Nolan, and Peter Safran had lunch together. What does that mean? I know that certainly, if you're not familiar with all the names, Peter Safran came in as uh, the money manager and the coordinator, producer, more or less, of DC Studios, along with James Gunn. And Christopher Nolan and Steven Spielberg require no explanation further, but... What are they doing? What are they having lunch about? If you remember, a long time ago, Spielberg was attached to making a Blackhawks movie, which I don't see happening anymore. And I don't see Christopher Nolan directing any DC movies anytime soon, but he was a producer on at least a couple of post-Nolan Batman movies, including Man of Steel, and we have Spielberg. I never in my wildest dreams thought that Steven Spielberg might direct a superhero movie much less what we're all thinking right now, which is a Superman movie. But, and this is the most arrogant thing I could possibly say about Steven Spielberg, but I think he'd do a great job. Ah, that Spielberg kid, he's got talent up to his ears, and he's a straight shooter, and I'm sure he'll go far in this town. But all kidding aside, Spielberg is a master of telling stories about heroes and about covering myth and legend, and... Americana, and who is one of the greatest mythic, heroic American legends but Superman? And this may be the best possible time for Spielberg to make a Superman movie, and let me tell you why. A couple of reasons. First of all, 
if you had told me 25 years ago that Spielberg was going to make a Superman movie, I guess I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. But if you had told me eight or nine years ago that Spielberg was going to make a Superman movie, I would have actually been kind of concerned, not just because of Spielberg's body of work, which speaks for itself. You know, he's had a couple of unexciting things come out, but they are undisputedly well-made movies. But there's no way that he would have been interested in helping DC build out a universe or introduce other characters that might be used in other properties. He would have been singularly focused on making a single Superman movie that says what he wants to say. And I can't fault him for that, but in a post-Marvel Cinematic Universe world, I want Superman to exist in a connected cinematic universe. Practically every single Superman that has ever appeared on screen has existed in his own universe. And that pretty much includes Man of Steel because there are no references to any other superheroes or any other characters outside of the Superman mythos. That Wayne Enterprises satellite does not count. Things that could have been Easter eggs made by the effects department don't count, no matter how badly we may want them to. But in the world we live today, if Spielberg wants to make a Superman movie, and he's meeting with Gunn and company, and they explain to him what they're doing, but also let him tell a self-contained Superman story that just exists within the entirety of the DC universe, I mean, that's the best of both worlds. Especially because I think, after a couple of flops, or at the very least, non-successes, Spielberg could be looking for a win right now. And that feels weird to say, but you know what? That's the world we live in right now. Plus, don't forget, dude produced those awful Transformers movies. So if you're going to give me a more or less rebooted Superman movie that takes place in a larger DC universe that is directed by Steven Spielberg with a dedicated team and a clear vision, then I am really excited about this. Now, of course, that's all we know. Right now, that's all we've gotten, which was reported by THR over four days ago. But it doesn't hurt to speculate a little bit because it's fun to think about and we're trying to put our positive ideas out into the world, aren't we? I saw a funny bit of news, and who knows what I'll think about this, because I never really plan these things in advance, but Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther 2 and, of course, Black Panther 1, was talking about Namor being introduced in Wakanda Forever. I don't think that's a spoiler, because he's in the trailer, and he's in posters and promotional material, but they're asking how strong Namor is, and they're saying that Namor is as strong as Thor, and if he were underwater, he'd be as strong as the Hulk or something, and I think that's funny, because that's such playground stuff to say, like, oh man, my new character, he is just as strong as the strongest characters. In fact, he may even be stronger if he were on his home turf. I never really understood the argument behind power scaling, I guess because as a kid, you know, you really want to know who's the strongest, who could beat who, who has what stats, because you want the world to make sense. You know, you don't want it to be just random. You know, like, just because Spider-Man wins this round against this character who's just as powerful as this other character doesn't mean that he would beat that character if it was in that other character's book. Just because the writer said so? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. There's rules here, aren't there? I mean, otherwise it's anarchy. Otherwise I'm going to die one day. On the subject of Namor's strength, I also don't expect we're going to see Namor fight Thor or Hulk at any point in the next five years, so it's wholly irrelevant and completely moot. But it's just funny that people are talking about that. I also know, apparently, that there won't be any post credit scenes in Wakanda Forever, so I get it, but it's kind of a drag. So issue six of Dark Crisis comes out today, and that means that we've got one more issue left of the Dark Crisis, and I thought it'd be fun to chat a little bit with Joshua Williamson 
about some of his decisions about who joined the Dark Army that quote-unquote slaughtered the Justice League in Justice League 75. And more specifically, who didn't get into that Dark Army? Hey, listen, I love the Unleashed. So I was like, I mean, <laughs> every time we've had these conversations, I'm always like, yo, what about Unreal Unleashed? Because I love Unreal Unleashed. Unreal Unleashed is actually uh, a super important event. Yes. You get you get Smart Blockbuster from that event, uh, and you get Lex back. Like, people yeah. forget Lex was not... The Lex we have now came from underworld unleashed like before that he had been he'd been dead like yeah. you had all this stuff where he you had the john Byrne version and then you had the 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 son the, the illegitimate son with the long hair yeah the clone somebody recently called him the son from australia and i had totally forgot that he's australian so I, I yeah back, yeah i went back and i read it and i was like oh that's right the black that we have now came from underworld unleashed and there's a ton of other pieces of of what we have of, of current dcu or i think the stuff people loved from like um the stuff that you loved from uh jla yeah a lot of those things were built because Underworld unleashed came out before jla and that was like howard porter getting leveled up before jla and it's like you have all of these major dc pieces that came out of Underworld unleashed uh i love that event um and so that's why neuron is in there because i'm like this person (laughs) is important and he's supposed to be the devil he's kind of like should we put him in here? And we should have a place for him. Yeah, we're fine. Let's put Neuron in here. You know, he's a shapeshifter. Like, let's let's get him in here. Let's get him in here. Yeah. You know, uh, it's also where my love of the trickster came from. It's because of oh, that sure, story. Yeah, he got souped you know? up, and uh, he's he's the protagonist of that story. I know it's so weird. It's so yeah. weird, but it's it's awesome. So that's you know, Underworld Unleashed, and then uh, Necron. You know, I think when you're doing a story Blackest about Night. the darkness and Blackest Night, you gotta Good have idea. Necron in there, and then obviously Dark Side and the Empty Hand and upside down man with his connections um that came out of conversations i had had with like rom v and with james about the upside down man and being like oh it's hinted that he either is or connected or a piece of the great darkness so i'm like oh you have to have him here then That's so awesome. we had some conversations about how to make that stuff add up and work and we'll get to that later uh yeah. but you know there's a lot of moving pieces to this but we just really went in there and i was like okay i want all the people like it was empty handed from multiversity i wanted to get a few others but it became unruly at some point yeah because i you noticed, know uh, one of the one of the big uh things that i noticed online some of the chatter was like everybody pretty much gets a compliment there's no bat compliment was the batman who laughs going to be in this or not <laughs> no no um okay. I, I feel like that has also had its time and we should let that character rest i've written a lot of batman who laughs so we did a lot with batman who laughs and because indeed, batman yeah. who laughed is so much a part of you know the bridge between metal and death metal yeah uh, you know that's a few years of DC storytelling and the Batman who laughs was a major, major piece of that. Cause remember he's not even the, he's not even the main villain of no, metal, that's right. but he becomes the main villain of death metal. death metal. And so he in particular, I kind of was like, no, 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 let's put him, let's put him away for a bit. And he does not show up. I can, I can make that promise. Batman okay. who laughs doesn't come into the story at all. Uh, don't get me wrong. The Batman who laughs is like a license to print money. Every time we put him in something or a cover or whatever, he would sell so much. Batman who laughs is a crazy money maker. And so to me, I was like, no, I can't do it. Uh, <laughs> um, and often it makes the story. That is a good point. I, I, I did think about that with where would I put uh, a Batman villain in this story? And like, could he be part of this army? And then I decided not to. There are other things that will come up later in Dark Crisis to uh, kind of get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But in this particular instance, 75, I didn't want any uh, Batman villains to be in this particular grouping. We went on for a while talking about the Dark Crisis and what was coming. And now that we're almost at the end, I think you should check out the full conversation over here at youtube.com slash returns and check out the episode The Truth Behind DC's Dark Crisis featuring Joshua Williamson. 
Now, this is not an ad or promotion. I, I am getting somewhere with this, but Matthew Rosenberg wrote a new Wildcat series. The new issue dropped today. He came on our other show, Off the Rack, to promote it, and I think he did a hell of a job, and I think it's a really fun idea to see these Wildstorm characters interact with the DC Universe in a way we've never seen before. And it got me to thinking about Legacy, and in particular, the Image Comics revolution that changed the nature of comic books as we know it in ways that we can't really even fathom or articulate today. And while that'd be really fascinating to get into, what I really want to focus on is the fact that there's a new Wildcats comic book out right now. And it's got me thinking about the fact that I have said on numerous occasions that there are really no bad characters or ideas outside, of course, of NFL Super Pro. But that maybe there are some characters who are relegated to the times from which they came. And I know I've certainly made that assertion before. I've definitely made jokes about Spawn being a relic from the 90s and the fact that he's never really been more relevant than he was circa like 1995-96. That being said, the Spawn series has continued since then that they've never stopped publishing Spawn. They never stopped making Spawn action figures. And when I say they, I guess I mean Todd. And so that makes me wonder if there isn't a powerful creator with a company behind them continuously reminding the audience that they exist, are those creations from their bygone eras truly trapped in those bygone eras? I'm partial to a character called the Max, even though I'm not necessarily partial to any continuing aspect of the Max's series. This is a character created by Sam Keith, drawn and written, and if you're a fan of me or this channel, you know that I've said on numerous occasions that Sam Keith is kind of self-deprecating and maybe a little confused about why anybody might be interested in that character outside of some kind of nostalgia. Now there's a creator from Image with a character that they own wholesale and could have spent the last 25 years reminding people that character exists and just proliferating that character in the zeitgeist as much as they could. And I'd probably venture to say the most relevant thing to happen to the Max in the last 15 to 20 years is him being in a recent, very delayed crossover comic book with Batman. And I don't want to imply these characters don't deserve to exist or that they only belong in the time from which they came. I honestly do believe that these characters could exist in today's time, but you have to have today's sensibilities or at the very least some kind of plan in place to introduce or reintroduce these characters to a new audience. Because I do believe that there is a limit on nostalgia, especially in today's world. There is a limit to saying, hey, remember you growing up with this thing? Well, it's for sale again, so you should buy it. I firmly believe that that marketplace only truly exists for toy collectors. Even movies, cartoons, comic books can only go so far. They need to have today's viewers and readers in their corner or they will not continue past the initial idea. So while a character or team might have been popular and may have had something that taps into the cultural consciousness at that time, you really can't expect or rely on that to be the only way to make that thing succeed. You need to also find some tangible connectivity to the reality of today. Of course, the only problem with that is that if you venture too far into the current you may stray so far that you've basically reinvented the property to something unrecognizable as it was. That was always my concern with Wildcats, because of course Wildstorm and everything within it was sold to DC Comics decades ago by Jim Lee, and as such, those characters were always just kind of forced into a box that I don't think they quite fit into. 
And despite Jim Lee's managerial position at DC Comics for so many years, Wildcats, Wildstorm, Gen 13, Team 7, these characters never really caught on. They never hit the way that they had when they first came in. I would argue that there's no Wildstorm character that ever reached anywhere close to the heights in the DC universe they did when they were in their own universe. But sometimes, some of those fans from the time those properties were created become creators themselves, and they have the opportunity to try and resurrect some of these properties on their own. I think Rosenberg falls under that category. And I think where Rosenberg will succeed, where others have failed, including Grant Morrison, who was at the helm of a relaunch at DC Comics for Wildcats back in the day, is because Rosenberg's pulling double duty. Because the Wildcats don't have one hill to climb, they got two. They have to be relevant today, and they have to work functionally in the DC universe. And if they're going to make it this time, they need to have an identity, and they need to have a role to play in this universe. Now, you have a lot of teams in the DC Universe. you got Suicide Squad, Justice League, Teen Titans, Justice League Dark. All these teams provide some kind of functional role and represent some aspect of the DC Universe. So what does Wildcats do? How does Wildcats justify itself? This is a question that I think most properties that we wonder where they are don't answer. Maybe even some characters like Savage Dragon and Spawn, who only exist because their creators have control over their publishing. Like, what role does Savage Dragon play in comic books today? What role does Spawn play in comics? What does Spawn say about the comic book industry in his books? What does Spawn reflect about modern comics today? I would argue he looks rad. That's kind of it. And I think that's why he hasn't reached the heights that he had once before, because he hasn't attempted to answer that question. What am I doing here? What role am I playing? Do I have a role here? And that's going to be really interesting come December when Batman Spawn 3 comes out. I really don't like to call it Batman Spawn 3 because it was Batman Spawn War Devil, Spawn Batman, and now this book, Batman Spawn. So technically, it's not 3, it is the third crossover, but it should just be called Batman Spawn, which I believe it is, but I digress. The third Batman Spawn crossover. That is going to be a really interesting opportunity for Spawn as a character because back in the day when the Spawn-Batman crossovers happened, Spawn was helping Batman. Because back in 1994, Spawn outsold Batman by over 100,000 copies. And now, it's the opposite. And I would argue that Batman himself has also answered this question. Back in the day when Spawn was outselling Batman, Batman was actually in a period of transition. Where he was going from episodic adventures that you could bomb in and out of at any point to a series where at least one or two significant events took place within the pages of Batman. That Batman's world was irrevocably changed by the end of the calendar year. Every year, until today. I can't say I really care for that. I think that that's ultimately damaging to both the character and the audience, because the character and their mythology can only bend so far before they break. Just as the audience's attention span, patience, and wallet could also not bend that far. So your only hope is audience turnover and recycling the audience so that the new crop of readers don't catch wise to it right away. But that's the nature of the marketplace today. And I'm really excited to see if these new readers, who may not have even heard of Spawn, respond to Spawn. If Spawn's look is so utterly cool that it actually ends up being timeless. I think that some of the themes and ideas of some of these characters 
are timeless, or at the very least have transferability. An elite mercenary who trades his soul for love and becomes a foot soldier in the Devil's Army is pretty cool, admittedly. I mean, replace the job of elite mercenary with motorcycle stunt driver, and you've got another timeless character that still hasn't gotten a good movie. But then again, you never know. I mean, look at the character of Invincible. Another image creation, 20 years old just about, who has a runaway successful cartoon series that never would have been produced back when Invincible was first created, who really just needed some social conditioning and some shifts in the marketplace to let that character really explode. One story, one character, one title, more or less one creative team? That's manga. Invincible is a Western manga. And as we all know, manga sells very well in the Western market. And we know why. Whereas maybe some timeless concepts don't really have a place in today's conversation. Or the execution of some of those more modern or prescient themes may have been a little more ham-fisted back then because it was still so ahead of its time, so groundbreaking. I mean, look at the movie Chasing Amy. It's about the fluidity of sexuality starring Ben Affleck. And yet, most of the TikTok generation that watches that movie is like, ugh, cringe. I'll bet Neil Gaiman was actually sweating bullets before the release of the Sandman series because he was like, okay, I know this means something, and I know that the audience loves this thing. But is that audience a nostalgia market, or is that a recyclable, new audience every generation? Are these ideas ahead of their time? Well, I'm here to tell you I've watched some of that show, and I will say, the best parts of those episodes are when it actually just pulls directly from the source material, and not when it tries to be modern. I'll bet it really depends just on the culture. I can't decide what's going to be considered contemporary or ahead of its time or modern. I was certain a modern adaptation of Preacher from Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon was going to hit hard. And it didn't. The show itself, I think, was a poor interpretation of the material, but I was pretty sure it wouldn't matter. And the market, the culture, well, they spoke for us, and they said, cancel this show. And meanwhile, Preacher is still in print. Now, getting back to that older image stuff, The Max, for example, I think that the cartoon from MTV is the best interpretation of that material. It's got a great voice cast, great sound effects, great music, and it utilizes the best stuff from that series' life cycle. Oh, and did you know each episode is only about, like, 11 minutes long? so it's easily digestible. And because it literally uses the panels and the words on the page, no rewrites, just straight up reading the dialogue, you're getting the purest version of an adaptation I've ever seen. So if I were Keith, I'd probably just get my hands on those and put those out into the world. But that's only if I wanted to get the Max out there and see if he really is timeless or not. To see if there is some kind of demand, that there's some kind of cultural relevance left for that character. But honestly, I doubt he cares. But what about other characters? Like Cyberforce or Shadowhawk? And what of the Wildcats? I mean, we know there's some love for the Authority. What about Team 7? Or Gen 13? It's actually kind of an exciting time. So if I were a creator from the 90s and I had a property that I owned wholesale, I'd pay real close attention to two books, Wildcats and Batman Spawn, and see what the reaction is. And now let's wrap up with some good and cheap, some comics that are out there that you can pick up that are both good and also won't break the bank. This week, writer J.M.D. Mateus returns to Spider-Man comics with Spider-Man The Lost Hunt number one. And while he is largely remembered for writing one of the most famous Spider-Man comics of all time, Craven's Last Hunt, he had quite a long stint in the 90s writing both Amazing Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man. If you enjoyed the recent miniseries Ben Reilly's Spider-Man The Lost Years, then you will love J.M.D. Mateus's The Child Within from 1991. With art by Sal Buscema, this collects Spectacular Spider-Man number 178 to 184. It is not available in any English language collection. This story arc marks the return of Harry Osborn into Spider-Man's life, and also his resuming of the identity of the Green Goblin. 
It also features oft-forgotten Captain America and Spider-Man villain Vermin, who's a really fun treat. The reason I bring this up is because it is an excellent series, and it is not collected anywhere, which means that you can pick this up for a few dollars. This seven-issue story takes place between Spectacular Spider-Man number 178 to 184. If you check the online price guides, each issue in this series is no more than $4 and no less than $2, which means there's a high likelihood that you can find this in dollar bins, and it is worth a pickup. I should say there is a collection of this run available in Italian. What that says to me is that there is an inevitability that this series will be collected someday, but no time soon. For me, it represents a really pure time in Peter Parker's life, when he was married, but things were far from perfect, and you believed anything could happen. So pick up Spectacular Spider-Man number 178 to 184 to read The Child Within, written by J.M.D. Mateus with art by Sal Buscema. And I guess that's it, because you're probably pulling in your job right now, so I want to wish you a great day, thank you for listening, and if you get an opportunity, subscribe to YouTube.com at Comic Pop Returns, and we'll see you guys next time, right here at Wake Up with Comic Pop. Comic Pop.